This morning we're going to have an enlightening time, although it might not be as much fun as uh, we've had in the past, because it's at this point in our series on rewards that we need to take a more serious note, although not, not that what we haven't been talking about hasn't been serious, but this, the, the whole subject of rewards and what the potential is for each person who has put their faith and trust in God is tremendous. But as, as uh, anything in life has an upside, there's also a downside that's involved in it too. And we're going to look at what the risk is involved. And um, particularly in the area of disobedience, the high cost of disobedience, which is God's payment schedule for prolonged sin. You know, we need to address a question that becomes very serious at this point in our study, and that is, how do you, you, lo how do you lose rewards? We've talked about how to earn rewards. We've talked about what rewards are. We've talked about the basis of it. We've talked about how that there's no foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ himself. And upon that foundation, we live our lives pleasing to God. So it's our faith and trust in God, or our belief, that determines our destination, but it becomes our performance which determines our, per our performance determines our compensation. So as we go through this, we're going to see that there's a high cost for disobedience. The problem is that we live in a day and age, which I'm sure you're well aware of, is that somehow or another we've bought into the fact that there is no consequences for our actions. I don't know about you, but as you look around at society at large and you see that we have come to believe that there is not a consequence for individual action. And I think a case in point could be made from simple illustrations, and this is how I think we've bought into it. Just like capitalanity or Christianism or whatever, where we've got capitalism on one hand teaching us one thing and Christianity teaches us another thing, and so we've creatively combined them all together to form whatever it is that we want to believe. Well, society may teach you one thing, the Bible may teach you another thing, and there comes a point in time where you need to choose which direction you're going to go. As far as individual accountability or the consequences for our actions, here's why I believe we don't believe that there's consequences for our actions. Recently, um, you, you may have read about this. A man goes down to Newport Beach. He dives into the surf, and he breaks his neck. And so what he does is, he sues the city of Newport Beach because there was not proper signs indicating that if you dove headfirst into the surf, that there may be an inherent risk involved in that. So there needed to be a sign that said, diving headfirst into the surf could be hazardous to your health. And he sues the city of Newport Beach for a couple million bucks. Now you laugh over that and you say, that is ridiculous. Anybody knows diving into the surf headfirst, there's inherent risk, right? So you say, that is absolutely bizarre. What is more bizarre is that he gets $1.8 million because the court system whether it was a jury or whether, and I think this was a trial by jury, um, indicates that, yeah, city of Newport Beach is negligent because they should have had signs warning that diving into the surf head first is hazardous to your health. So you sit and you go, hmm. Then you hear, and, and I didn't know anything about your friend falling off the ladder, but I've seen a, um, a particular 60-minute segment that talked about the ladder industry. And you know that little sign on the top step of your ladder, don't use this top step as a step. You know the one that you usually look down at when your feet are on it? <laughs> that, one, that one there. And um, so, and you know the ladder industry has found out that people use that step as a step even though they put signs that say don't use it as a step. And when you fall off a ladder, even though the sign is there warning you don't stand on that as a step, even though you fall off the ladder, somehow or another the ladder company is still negligent because you fell off the ladder. 
So you sue and you get a judgment. Okay? And it goes on from there. And as I jot down some of these, you walk into a restaurant. Have you seen this one? This is the best one yet. You've, you've seen this one now in the restaurants? It's uh, consumption of alcoholic beverages during pregnancy may cause birth defects. You see it in all the restaurants now. Why? Because somebody went to a restaurant and had a drink or two or three or ten and end up having a problem or complication with their pregnancy, so they said, aha, I don't want to be individually accountable or responsible for my actions, so therefore I think I should sue the restaurant because they should have told me when I came in to drink that I was pregnant, even though I knew I was pregnant, even though I knew I was drinking, they should have still had the responsibility of telling me, so I think I'll sue them and get a judgment. And they get a judgment. So now you see signs all over restaurants everywhere saying that consumption of alcoholic beverages during pregnancy may cause birth defects. So now I wrestle with all of this, and you go, hmm, you know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe there is no consequence for individual action. Maybe if I do a poor, if I'm not doing well at my job, and I do get terminated because I'm doing a poor job, but I've been there for a number of years, I think I got a case for wrongful termination. So we sue them because I wasn't doing a good job at my job, but because they didn't document it like they should have documented it, I'm going to sue them even though they were right. I know it. Everybody knows it. It doesn't matter, but they didn't do it right, so let's sue them and get a judgment. Guess what? I'm not accountable for poor job performance anymore. I'm not accountable as I see it for anything in my life. And you know what? You're not either. And we're buying into it. The most absurd example that I can think of is drunk driving. It is absolutely asinine. You go and you get drunk, which is a deliberate choice on your part to go and get drunk. You then go and you get in your car, which is a deliberate choice to get in your car, and then you go and you kill somebody, and you know what I say? I'm not guilty. Because I'm not responsible for my actions because I was drunk. And so they say, Okay, 30 days suspended sentence. Nobody is responsible for anything. Or they say, not guilty by reason of insanity. As if a sane person, person would axe murder 30 people. Right? I don't understand. What's the confusion here? The confusion is that we say they're not responsible because nobody that's normal would do what they did, so they must be insane, so we must let them go. And I sit there and I read in the Bible that God says, whatsoever man sows, that's what he'll reap. But on the other hand, in society, we're being told, guess what? You're not accountable for anything. There are no consequences for your actions. And it doesn't matter what a bozo you are, there's always an out. So I carry this thinking into the Bible. And I think, as I read through the Bible, God, this can't be right because there's evidence of exactly the opposite all around me. I'm not responsible. I'm not accountable. And don't tell me that there's even a price for disobeying you. Because I don't see it. So therefore, I don't believe it. But the question then comes in, it gets so confusing, it's like I saw a definition of a pessimist. A pessimist is one who feels badly when he feels good, for feel he'll feel worse when he feels better. Well, dwell on that. 
But it's like, okay, I'm not too confused. Let's just simplify it. Are there consequences for Christians who sin willfully against God? And the answer, according to the Bible, is yes. Payday, someday. And it ties into what we're talking about for rewards. I'm glad Richard's here representing the Marines at Camp Pendleton. Because we've got an ugly group out here, buddy. So I'm going to be calling on you shortly. Because it's going to get nasty. Are there consequences for Christians who sin willfully against God? And the answer is, of course there is. And it doesn't matter what you see around you, God says differently. You are individually accountable to God for every one of your actions, and it doesn't matter who you can blame and who you can sue and how you can get out of it. God says it ain't that easy in his program. So as we study in this whole series on rewards, we need to understand that if you deliberately choose to disobey the commandments of God, there is a consequence for it. That's what we're going to take a look at. It's difficult for many of us because we're being told there is no consequence and not to worry about it. Now, what I want to share with you is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no longer any guilt that's laid upon us because of the death and uh, subsequent resurrection of our Lord. If we put our faith and trust in Him, God says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Does it mean a Christian can sin? Of course it means a Christian can sin, and God's given us a provision when He talks about confession and repentance. But it also means this, that even though there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that as we confess and repent and we change our way, God says He forgives us and forgets about it, it does not mean that we do not live with the consequences of our action. Very simple, stupid illustration would be a person who kills somebody, they're convicted of it, they're put into prison, they, they confess their, their sin to God, He forgives them for it, but they still got 20 years left in their sentence. Are they forgiven? According to God, they're forgiven. According to society, they're not because they still got 20 years to go and this is where all the confusion comes in. God's got a different justice system than we do as people. So we get real confused about it. So we try to integrate our thought process into what God's teaching instead of saying, God, I don't know anything. Why don't you tell me what's going on? So as we look at all this this morning, we don't know anything. Why don't you tell me what the consequences are for my action? And there's eight truths that are represented throughout the Bible. If you want to jot them down, we'll just take them one, one at a time. Truth number one, the Bible teaches us that if you keep sinning, God will send conviction into your life. We're told in John chapter 16 that when a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that God himself indwells that person. That it's the Spirit of God who bears witness with our spirit that we are now a child of God. It is the Spirit of God within our life that begins to convict us of areas in our life that we need to clean up. In John chapter 8, there was, a, um, there was a woman who was committing the very act of adultery, if you remember the particular story. And as Jesus was there, and he began to present certain truths to the crowd that was there, it says that one by one, their conscience bothered them to where none of them could throw a stone. He said, he was without sin, let him throw the first stone. And as he began, as he began to present to them the word of God, they were made aware of the weaknesses in their life. And it says, and it began with the oldest to the youngest, they all started to turn and they walk away. And Jesus then said to the woman, where, where, are, the, where are the ones who wanted to uh, throw stones at you? And he said, there's no one here. They all went away. See, for a Christian, the reality of it is 
that if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, the Spirit of God now lives within you and He makes you aware of areas of your life that you need to clean up in obedience with what the Word of God teaches. And so as this conviction enters in, we read in Hebrews 12.5, and, ha and you have forgotten that the word of encouragement that addresses you is sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when He rebukes you. As you look at the word rebuke, it's talking about conviction. You are going to be convicted and I am going to be convicted of areas of our life that don't measure up to what God says is right. And we have a choice at that point. God says, Chuck, clean up that area of your life. And he continues to convict me about it, to challenge me in that area. And if I don't do it, you know what the cost of that disobedience is? I no longer have joy in my life. And as we look at this progression, which is a downhill slide of what's going on in our lives, we'll see that the very first area that we begin to accommodate sin in, and we look at it and say, well, it's just a little thing. It's not that big a deal. We justify it, rationalize it. And it's just, just a little insidious area of our life. And God says, as I convict you of that, you need to clean that area up. If you don't clean it up, you know what it's going to cost you? It's going to cost you your joy. Psalm 51, we read that David said, Make me to hear joy and gladness once again. He went on to say, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Many of us are, have accommodated sin in our life, and what has happened is, it has laid aside the opportunity that we have to earn rewards by, doing, by pleasing God in the way that we live, and we begin to accommodate sin, and we're convicted of it, and we say, No, we rationalize it, justify it, and, and we deal with it, only from the standpoint that we ignore it. And we begin to lose the joy in our relationship that we once had with the Lord. What has happened to the joy in our relationship is the question that you'll begin to ask yourself. And the bottom line is you need to examine yourselves to see if there's an area that is not pleasing to God. And you know what's so funny? I challenge you to, to consider this. You ask God to show you an area in your life that's not pleasing to Him, and I'll guarantee you that you'll know it in a second. God wants you to know where you're not living a life that's pleasing to Him. And it's so funny because if you even have to ask where is an area of my life not pleasing to you, you already know what it is. I always do. It's like, well, show me that. I'm hoping He won't show me that. And that's exactly what He shows me. And I already knew He was going to show me that because I already knew it anyway. And I was kind of hoping that somehow God would follow along with my rationale and my logic and my reason. Say, that really isn't a problem in my life. And He says, no, that is a problem in your life. You need to clean it up. So the first thing is, if you keep sinning as a Christian, God will send conviction into your life to show you what you need to clean up. The second area that we need to take a look at is that if you keep sinning, and this is kind of the progression of all this, if you keep sinning, we read Hebrews 12.6, that because the Lord disciplines those He loves, and He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. Those whom I love are rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. It's like a little, it's so funny. It's, you know, God says, okay, I'll convict you in this area. You need to clean it up. And you go, well, that, that's not enough. And you know what, let me illustrate it this way because it would probably be a lot easier because it's too hard to see it when it's us, but it's easy to see it when it's our kids. It's like, your kids are probably like my kids. Well, maybe not. Probably not at all. See, I think there's a genetic defect that, that we've discovered in our children. Could be hereditary. Now, your children probably don't have this problem. Um, but we have found that our kids aren't real bright. So I know it's hereditary. 
<laughs> now, I don't know. Your kids may be great. They may be so smart. I mean, they're just incredible. But you know what's interesting? Is that every one of these kids know when they're doing something not right. They know it. All you got to do is challenge them on it, and they already knew it, but they thought they'd try it to see if they get away with it. Just to make sure that what they thought was right is still right today, even though you know it's been a day or two since you've already addressed it last time. So they just want to keep, keep current. Now, it's easy to see it in their lives. God convicts them of what's wrong in their life, and they have a choice. Hmm. Should I or shouldn't I? And if they say, no, I better not, then it stops there. If they say, I think I'll try it again, then it moves into the next phase, which we're reading about now, and God says the same is true of us. If when convicted, you don't stop what you're doing, then I'll kick it into the next phase, which is called discipline. And discipline is never a um, delightful experience. Think about it in dealing with your children. Don't do it. Don't do it. You did it. You're dead. <laughs> works pretty sick. I mean, it's real slick. It just works like that. And God says the same thing. He said, hey, don't do it. Don't do it. You did it. Now it's time to discipline you. So we're going to kick it in the next phase. If you keep sinning, God will send chastisement. And chastisement always means pain. Now there may be discomfort with conviction, but there will be pain with chastisement. There is always pain associated with discipline. In fact, uh, Ephesians 6.4 talks about fathers train up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It has to do with a controlling hand that we should have, our, have some restraints around them, guiding them as they go, but as they step out of line, you kind of shove them back over this way. See, God does the same thing with us. He lets us go. We keep on going. He says, Chuck, stop doing it. Stop doing it. Oh, I got to, oh, you're doing it. Uh, let, me, let me just take my hand here and push you back over this way just a little bit. And you've got to remember that everything that God does, he does out of love because he, who, he whom he loves, he reproves or he disciplines. That's what this is all about. So as you take a look at it, I like, I like um, you know, the, uh, the one boy who was praying, he said, uh, Lord, you know what, um, if you can't do anything to change the way that I am, don't worry about it because I really like what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, a lot of us are like that. And we continue to go that direction. But the net cost of that is that we lose the peace in our life. We start to look over our shoulders and we get what's called paranoid about everything going on in our life. See, it's like, you know, um, you're, you're con Here, here's a good one. You're driving down the freeway. And um, you know that you shouldn't be driving as fast as you're driving, right? You know it, but you have a choice. You can keep doing it or you can stop. Well, you're convicted about it. You know a guy saying, hey, slow down, slow down, slow down. And you say, no, nah, I don't think I have to. Because why? Society says it's okay, everyone else is doing it, so I don't have to worry about it. Until you see in the rearview mirror an officer going, Meow. see, discipline kicks in. And so then you pull over, and uh, based on everything else that we've learned about society, we say, thank you, officer, as a ministering agent of peace in my life. The fact that I was driving down the freeway, continually worrying about whether one day I was going to get a ticket, and I was wrestling with it, and it was bothering me, and I couldn't sleep at night. And now that you've finally pulled me over, and you're disciplining me, according to Romans 13, as a ministering agent of peace in my life, I just want to thank you and I want to thank God that he has a system that's set up to, to serve and protect. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Isn't that the way you respond? <laughs> and he's going, 
the first thing he expects you to say is, it's not my fault. The odometer doesn't work. Everybody was going faster than me. Why'd you pick me out? And that's when they respond back, because as a ministering agent <laughs> of peace in your life, God has sent me to you specifically. That would be the greatest response. I would love it. And then it's like, okay, sign here. But see, that's the way it works. So, see, as God convicts you in your life and you don't change or clean up your act, then he begins to discipline you and you lose the peace that you have in your life because you're always looking over your shoulder at when am I going to get caught? When am I going to get caught? Everything somebody says, you read into it and it's like, wonder what they meant by that. Do you think they know what I'm doing? Do you think they know what's going on? It's like, do they know something about me? I don't know how many times people leave here actually thinking their friends told me something about them and I threw it up in, in here. Oh, I threw it up. It's an ugly sight actually when you think about it. <laughs> threw it out. That's probably even uglier to the people in the first row. But I mentioned it somehow along the line in this and it's not me, it's the Word of God because the Bible tells us that the Word of God convicts us of an area of our life that we need to get cleaned up. You know, Hebrews tells us in, 4, in 4.12 that it's the, the Word of God that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to judge and discern the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. God knows everything is laid open and bare to Him who knows everything about you. So when you're saying, oh, do they know, do they know, the only person you really care about whether he knows or not is God Himself because He's the one that will deal with you and discipline. Now, if you keep sinning, the next step is great. It's called scourging. Because the Lord disciplines those He loves and He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. The word scourging has to do with the same word that's used of Jesus Christ when the soldiers scourged Him. And with a leather, with a leather strap and nine leather straps and at the end of each of those leather straps was tied into it pits of bones and metal. And when it says that they scourged the Lord, that's how they scourged Him. And the same word is used of us. Because see what sometimes happened is, you say, well, conviction's not enough, and I've been able to deal with conviction, so I've got beyond that. The <laughs> discipline's not that big a deal. Hey, what's a $55 or $70 ticket? So I'm just going to go back to do the same thing that I'm doing. That's not that big a deal. So then God says, boy, you know what? You're really starting to get a real hard hide there, young man. So I'm going to have to kick it into the next step, which is scourging. And basically, see, this is how I relate to it. He's telling me, you know what? I'm going to kick your butt. And I can relate to that. Now, you may not be able to relate to that. My kids can relate to that. <laughs> so I can relate to it. So, that, I mean, I don't care. Whatever it takes for you to understand what God's trying to do in your life. He's convicting you, you don't deal with it. He disciplines you, you don't deal with it. He says, I'm just going to kick your butt and take you out back. Oh, this is getting serious. And you know what's funny? Each step of the way, he gives you the opportunity to repent and to change directions. Conviction, repent, judge yourself. Discipline, stop doing it. Repent, judge yourself. Scourging, we give you another chance. Repent and judge yourself because it's getting nasty. And you know what it cost you at that point? It cost you your fellowship. Have you ever been in a family that had a, just a hard-nosed kid? You have a real stubborn kid? They're convicted about what they're doing. They know it's wrong. They keep doing it. You discipline them. Boy, I mean, you, 
you take away their privileges, uh, you change their curfew, um, you, you take away their car keys. I mean, you go I mean, you do everything you can think of and nothing's working. It almost gets to the point where you want to do it, right? Let me ask you, how much fun are we having around the old housestead? The old homestead there as you're all sitting around the t kitchen table eating? A lot of nice conversation going on, isn't there? Are things a little tense? I mean, you're all, all the artillery's on the table, man. It's like, it's chemical warfare next. You know, get them while they're sleeping. It's tense. Not a lot of fellowship going on in the old house. God says it's the same thing. You know what? You don't listen to conviction, you're not going to have any joy in your life as a Christian. You don't listen to discipline, you're not going to have any peace in your life because you're going to always be looking over your shoulder. And if scourging's not enough, then we're, we're going to have a problem with fellowship in here, aren't we, ladies and gentlemen? It's going to be a real tough time. See, because God is serious about this. And He wants you to know that. He is serious about this program. He doesn't care whether you think diving into the surf is going to get you a million eight and you're not responsible for your own actions. He's saying you are responsible for your actions and I'm going to make sure that you understand it. Now the next part is real fun. If you keep going and you get more and more stubborn, guess what happens? Galatians 6.1, if you keep sinning, God will send confrontation into your life. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. You know what the Bible teaches us? That when you know of someone who is sinning in their life, that you and I have a responsibility to confront them. You know what we usually do, though? We tell somebody else so that we can pray about it, so that they know about it, so we can all talk about it, so everybody knows about it. But do we confront that person? No, you know why? That's not my spiritual gift. I don't have the spiritual gift of confrontation. I'd rather just talk to everybody else about it, let everybody else know what they're doing, rather than approach them in love as a brother and say, look, there's an area in your life that's come to my attention, and I feel a responsibility based on the Word of God to share it with you, not because I'm better than you, not because I'm perfect, not because I'm right and you're wrong, but because that's what God says, and that's my responsibility. It's not a spiritual gift, and it's not a, um, a luxury that we have. It's a commandment, and it's a responsibility that each one of us have toward one another if we love each other as we should. Boy, you know what, though? Get out of town. You know, I'll tell you what, there's no one going to be excited about listening to that. And the first thing they're going to do is exactly what Adam did in the garden. So anticipate it. Hey, God, you made this lady. It's her fault. And if it's not her fault and you don't buy that, then it's your fault because you made her. It's not my fault because I'm individually not accountable for my actions. Right? Wrong. You know what God says? If you know someone in your life that's living in sin and it's come to your attention, then you have every responsibility to confront that person individually and to let them know what's going on. That is probably the hardest thing for any of us to do because somehow we feel we're not qualified to do it. Turn with me for a moment to 1 Corinthians 5. And I'm going to show you an example that's laid out for us and I think we can identify with to a certain degree. Now, I want you to understand how this works, and it's very important that you do. 
Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife, put into everyday English, uh, some guy shacking up with his uh, stepmom. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven... A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dill. What they were saying was, but aren't we good people for tolerating this? I mean, compassion, grace, love, all those things. I mean, isn't that exactly what you're trying to teach us? So Paul's saying, look, there's a sin existing among you that even the Gentiles don't even put up with. Here's a guy shacking up with his stepmom, and the church's response to it is, we all know about it, but that's okay because we're trying to be compassionate and loving. And he goes, what's wrong with you people? That is not what the Word of God teaches us to do. And he says, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. What he's saying is, clean it out. Get rid of it. Don't entertain sin in your camp. He says, let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and the swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. What he's saying is, you and I put up with sin in, in among the brothers who say that they're believers. We tolerate it and put up with it. And then we go out into the world and we say, we can't stand being around that person because they're shacking up with their stepmom. And he says, what's wrong with you people? You have no tolerance or compassion for those who, have, who are not saved, who don't have the ability to live a life pleasing to God because they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit within their life to do so. So you don't put up with the world because of the way they live, but you all know Christian brothers and sisters who live any way that they want to live, and you put up with it and it's okay. Why? Because they're Christian brothers and sisters and I want to be compassionate and tolerant. He goes, cut me a break. He said, I, I've written to you that you would not associate with immoral people. But I actually, in verse 11, he says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not know or do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Those who are inside, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. It would be amazing to me at the results, if we all thought and believed that if the lives that we are living that were not pleasing to God, if any of us had the power of God behind us to go and confront that person and say to them in very plain, simple English, listen, if you're going to keep on doing what you're doing, you can just write me off as a friend. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to come around you. I don't want to be with you. I don't want to have dinner with you. I don't want to do anything with you until you clean up that act that you have going on in your life and get right with God. And until you're ready to do that, then I'm just going to walk down the other way when I see you coming. I'm going to go this way when you go that way. I don't want anything to do with you. And you sit there and look at me like, oh, isn't that a cruel thing to do? Yeah, it's cruel and it's biblical. And the whole reason for it is that it brings about restoration. Isolation has always been designed to promote brokenness. Why do you think there's solitary confinement in prisons? 
When you are thrown into solitary confinement and you have nobody around you and all that you can deal with is what's going on in your life, it breaks you. If all of your friends got together and said, you know what, until you clean up your act, this is what it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you everything that you hold dear. So you need to weigh whether what you're doing is more fun than being with us. If it is, go have at it. And if it's not, then repent before God. I like there was a story of um, uh, Paul Horning. I don't know if any of you remember Paul Horning. Paul Horning played for the Green Bay Packers. Vince Lombardi always put curfews on his players. So Paul Horning, and, uh, and he, was, uh, he liked to go run around. He was a crazy guy. He liked to go out and drink. He liked to break his curfews. And so the first time I, uh, he got caught, Lombardi went to him and said, Hey, Horning, that's going to cost you 250 bucks." Horning said, well, okay. So a week later, they do a bed check. Horning's gone again. Lombardi's going crazy. He grabs him in his office and says, Horning, that's going to cost you $500. Next time it's $750. A week later, Horning's out again. It costs him $750. Lombardi's going crazy. He can't figure out what to do with this guy. He brings Horning into his office the last time and he says, Listen, the next time you go out and you break curfew, it's going to cost you 1000 bucks." And he said, if there's anything out there worth a thousand bucks and you come wake me up, I'm going with you. <laughs> he didn't know what to do. He couldn't deal with it. And everything involves a price. Ladies and gentlemen, we have an obligation. If there is someone in our midst who is sinning willfully, God says he needs to send somebody to confront him. How many of you have ever done that? It's not fun, it's not easy, or do we take the other approach and just talk about them behind their back? So we could pray for them, of course. How many of you can confront somebody one-on-one -on -one and let them know, look, you know what? You're in dangerous ground. And it's going to cost you everything you hold dear. And it's going to start right here today with me. Don't, don't even call me unless you want to call for help but I don't want to go to a game with you. I don't want to have lunch with you. I don't want to do anything with you until you clean it up. And the only reason I'm doing this is because I love you and I want to see what's best for you in your life according to what God teaches in His Word. You know what? And if that's not good enough, guess what else happens? Then He sends the whole church. Matthew 18 deals with it individually. Again, He says, confront them individually. What does he say? And if it doesn't work, then take two or three more people with him. And if that doesn't work, then put it before the church board and everybody's going to find out about it. And then you're going to lose your self-respect. Right at this point, nobody knows what's going on. You can confess it before God. You can make it right. But I'll tell you what, the way that you're going, everybody's going to know. Everyone's going to find out. And if we were doing this right, I mean, this is the kind of thing where the world tells you, oh, you can't do that. We'll sue you. We've read about it. We've seen it in the papers. A church tries to enact discipline on one of its members. And what happens? They say, well, we'll sue you. And so churches stop doing it because they don't want to be liable and responsible legally. So we begin to compromise the word of God and say, well, we can't do that because they will sue us. Or what happens is we leave the church and we go down the street because nobody knows and no one has to know. So we go down the street and we don't deal with it. And that luggage follows you every place that you go. God says what you bind here on earth is going to be bound in heaven. What that church binds is going to be bound in heaven. It doesn't matter if you leave, go somewhere else. It's bound before God until you make it right. And there are a lot of people who come to big churches that are carrying baggage with them from another church and they never go back and make that right. And God's saying, until you do, you're never going to have respect. You're not going to have fellowship. You're not going to have joy. You're not going to have a peace. You better clean up your act and get it right. Matthew 18. And in 2 Thessalonians it says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. The bottom line is that there's always supposed to be shame that goes along with living in sin. 
And the only way we feel shame is when we are isolated from those whom we love that are serving God. We don't do it. We should do it. God says this, if that's not enough, if you keep sinning, you'll send physical sickness. And it's going to cost you your health. He says, is any of you sick in James 5? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Does all sickness stem from sin in a person's life? Of course not. The Bible is very clear on that. John chapter 9, many things happen in our lives so that God may be glorified through it. But then the question really needs to be addressed though and we can't ignore it is that is there sin in your life that's causing physical sickness? Because see, if you're worried and you're anxious and you're looking over your shoulder and you're paranoid and all these things are going on because of sin in your life, then it's going to cause physical sickness. Have you ever seen somebody who manifests physical sickness in their life? You look in their face and they're drawn and, they're, and they look terrible and, and you wonder what's going on in their life and they say, oh, nothing. A lot of times it's because there's unconfessed sin in their life and God's dealing with them and he's judging them for it. You know, the elders are called together to pray for somebody and the question that has to be asked, and I've been involved in it, is that... You know, we have to ask this, ask this according to the Word of God. Is there sin in your life that you need to confess right now? If there's sin in your life, confess it. Let's pray about it. And God promises you that if that's the cause of it, that you'll be, you'll be forgiven and healed. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. The stuff is all here and we just kind of buzz through it and we don't realize there's a consequence for your action. You know, and uh, could God forgive you of a past sin and still experience the consequences of sickness today? Of course, and I think probably the greatest judgment that we see around us is this epidemic called AIDS. Six, seven years later, the virus can show up and a person could have confessed their lifestyle previous to that, stopped doing it for the last five years, and today experience sickness because of it and ultimately die. Does, has God forgiven them? You bet he has. Are they experiencing the consequences of their actions? You better believe it. That's life. And if that's not enough, you know what God says? You know what? You're such a bonehead. I mean, that's what he's saying. You know what? Look, I've warned you all throughout this process. It's cost you your joy. It's cost you your peace. It's cost you fellowship. It's cost you your respect. It's cost you relationships. It's cost you everything. It's costing you your health. And you know what? It's time that I just get you out of the program. So man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And this has to do with uh, our Lord's Supper. And the people were there partying. They are having a good time. They were, they were defaming this special privilege that we have as believers. And he said that, you know what? And as we look at it, that is why many among you are weak and sick. And a number among you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. God is saying that, you know what? If you don't clean up your act, that ultimately he may just pull the plug on your whole program. Because you're more hindrance to him than a benefit. Boy, and I bet you would be real surprised to find out how many people die of heart attacks, how many people are killed in car accidents or die in plane wrecks that God pulled the plug on them because they're hurting the cause of Christ. And they've been continually warned over and over and over and over again. And you know what? Each one of us during this whole process has a decision to pick whether or not we want to go this direction. What is it going to take for you to repent of unconfessed sin in your life? What is it going to take to be obedient? Does God have to pull the plug? And to tie it all in together, the Bible teaches us that it's going to cost our rewards. He says, watch out, in 2 John 8, watch out that you do not lose what you've worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. There's a couple of different ways to interpret this, and I'll just throw them out to you, and you can wrestle with them and study it yourself. The first way that I see it is that, okay, you can earn rewards, and if you don't keep on keeping on, so to speak, that you could lose them somewhere along the line. 
That's one interpretation of it. That you can keep building this account, building it up, and then do something totally stupid and God will pull the plug and, and you'll lose your reward. That's one interpretation. The second interpretation is, as you look at that, it says that you may be rewarded fully, is that, and I tend to lean this direction because I don't see a lot of support otherwise. That a person can serve faithfully God for 40 years, do a lot of things that earn rewards, and then blow it at the end, do something stupid, cost them their life, and then God's going to say, well, everything you did was waste, wasted. I don't know. I don't see that. But I do see this, that you will be rewarded fully, meaning that you have full opportunity and time available to do all that which is pleasing to God to earn a reward, that you would be fully rewarded according to the maximum capability that you've been given by God. Which means this, the whole time you and I live in sin is a time where we're not maximizing our opportunity to be serving God and thus earning rewards that will be uh, presented before the judgment seat of Christ. you follow the logic behind that? So as you're sinning willfully and continue to sin, guess what? It's costing you valuable time and none of us know whether today is the last day that God will give us on this earth. Can you afford to lose one day as you are entertaining the sin in your life or should you confess it today and start serving God so that the performance that you are now living is going to earn you rewards? That's the question that each one of us has to address. What is it going to take for God to get your attention? Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you for just a lot of material and just a short time to accomplish it all, but we just thank you that nonetheless your word is true. Help us to realize how accountable we are, each one of us, to you and that there are consequences for every decision. God, the question that we need to ask is what does it take for you to get our attention? You're a loving God who gives us ample opportunity to repent and confess it along this path. God, help us not to get to the point where we need to lose our peace and joy and our relationships with one another and our fellowship with you. God, help us as we see others in our lives who uh, you're encouraging us to confront, to give us the strength to be able to do so, realizing that it's always with the idea of restoration to draw that person back into fellowship with you. God, help us to have the strength to be able to do it. And God, help us also to be able to confess and repent before we're confronted. And if we are, to admit it and to realize it and to stop what we're doing. God, don't allow us to lose our self-respect and our respect that causes our health to deteriorate and sometimes even to the point of death, you tell us. Oh God, just give us the strength to realize, aside from what we're taught all around us, that there is consequences in every decision of our life and that we need to maximize every day, every minute, every moment that you give us to earn those rewards which you've promised to those who are obedient and serving you faithfully. God, not one of us here can afford to lose one extra minute May we confess this morning and repent and retract and to turn and go in a direction pleasing to you. And we just thank you that you've warned us throughout your word that we cannot stand before you without knowing that we're accountable, that you've told us, and it's a matter of choice on our part whether we're going to be obedient. God, give us the strength always to be obedient. We just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.